Well, let me have you turn in your Bibles this morning to Ezra. Ezra chapter uh, 1 for our time of study in God's Word uh, this morning. Ezra chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1, or chapters 1 and 3 today and spend most of our time in chapter 3. But if you want to give a title uh, to the message this morning, it would be What Awakened People Do. What Awakened People Do. And if there's any question that I want you to be asking yourself throughout the sermon uh, this morning, and I'm going to be asking myself this question, uh, we should be asking ourselves the question, am I a spiritually awakened person? Am I a spiritually awakened person? Funny thing for me to be preaching on the topic of, of being awakened, because when I was a teenager, I hated waking up in the morning. Uh, my mom would call from downstairs. We had a two-story house, and I, my room was upstairs, and she would call on a school day morning from downstairs and tell me to, to get up, and my thought first thought in the morning was not to actually get up and out of bed and be up and about. My first thought was, how do I create the impression that I am out of bed? And so I would still be lying in bed and I would lift my left leg up off the bed and then let my left foot drop and hit the floor with a thud to create the impression for my mom downstairs that I had gotten out of bed and I was walking about. Uh, My mom would notice that I did not materialize downstairs, and so she would call again, and my foot would hit the floor again, but I would fall back to sleep. My foot's on the floor, but the rest of my body's in the bed. And when I would hear her voice, I would thump my foot on the floor and fall back to sleep. My mom eventually would get fed up with this, and so she would send my dad upstairs to come and wake me up and my dad would walk upstairs sometimes dressed in his marine corps dress blues and the fear of god would come upon me and i would be sore afraid and i would with a racing heart scramble out of bed uh, and be wide awake but even still if i could have done in that moment what i wanted to do i would have crawled back into bed and fallen fast asleep all of this I share because it has come back to haunt me because I have children who are similarly unthrilled with waking up in the morning and they have no appreciation for me and anything that I have done in seeking to assist them in achieving a wakened state in the morning. In fact, one of my children told me recently, it was somewhere around Father's Day, uh, he said to me, I quote, word for word, Dad, The sound of your voice in the morning is the worst sound in my life. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. Uh, But actually, I understand this. When I wake my kids up in the morning, I intentionally will usually make myself as obnoxious as I possibly can. I will come into the room and slap the walls of their room really hard. I'll go through their room sometimes wrapping my knuckles on the wall and telling the kids I'm looking for studs behind the drywall. 
Uh, on some occasions when I have been desperate, I have taken plastic water bottles. Parents, you should try this. Um, plastic water bottles, and I have crinkled them uh, close to the ears of my children. And they typically will jump out of bed when I do that and flee the room just to get away from the noise. Uh, Research shows that crinkling plastic uh, gives off a sound that doesn't really bother adults, uh, but it is especially irritating to teenagers prior to 10 a.m. in the morning. Um, But even still, I've done this at times. I've crinkled plastic water bottles in my kids' ears on some mornings, and they've gotten up and left the room in a huff. So I assumed they were up and about only to go into my own room 10 minutes later and find them fast asleep in my own bed. Um, Or parents, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Have you ever come to your children and said, wake up, maybe for the third or fourth time, and they say, I am awake. That ever happened? I am awake. Uh, They say they're awake, but a second earlier, they were lying prostrate on the bed, their eyes were closed, their mouths were gaping wide open with drool running down their chin. And, you know, their behavior is not the behavior that we would associate with being in a wakened state. So I have no other choice as a parent but to conclude that they have not been awake, even though they say that they are. There are characteristics of awakened people. As parents, we look for those characteristics in order to feel assured that our children are indeed awake. I say all this to say that waking up is sometimes hard to do. And waking, in fact, we should write a song. Waking up is hard to do. And waking people up can often be as much of a chore. But how about this? What if I told you that there's a story in the Bible about Jehovah God waking up a king? Not just any king, but the most powerful emperor on the planet and causing him to do something that prior to that moment, no one would have even thought possible. What would you think if I told you that there's a story in the Bible of God uh, waking up over 42,000 people and stirring them to begin a journey from where they're living now to go hundreds of miles away back to their homeland? Waking up an emperor is an epic thing to do. Waking up a nation of people is a massive miracle of seismic proportions. And that's exactly what we find happening in Ezra chapter 1. As we come into the book of Ezra, it's interesting, you can almost break down chapter 1 in this way. There's two great awakenings that happen in Ezra chapter 1. The first great awakening is actually found in chapter 1 verse 1 where God awakens Cyrus. We actually find the Hebrew word for um, waking somebody up in this. We see this word, this Hebrew word, twice in this chapter. And the first is found in verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up 
or literally the Lord awakened the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and every survivor at whatever place he may live. Let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This is utterly amazing. The people of Israel had been in the land of Persia essentially for approximately 70 years now. You guys remember that because of the sin of the people of Judah and the southern kingdom, God sent the Babylonians in to overrun them, to bring them, to uproot them and to take them into captivity. After that happened, the Persians overran the Babylonians and Cyrus was one of the kings of Persia that came to power and the people of Israel have been in captivity for approximately 70 years now under the disciplining hand of God. And as the curtains open on Ezra in chapter one, verse one, we find ourselves at the tail end of this 70 year period of captivity. And lo and behold, Cyrus, the emperor, just one day ups and delivers this decree. It's an amazing decree saying all of the people of Israel, uh, I would like for you to go back to leave and you're welcome to go back and and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And I would also like to encourage my people to give you an offering that you can take with you to help pay for your expenses of travel and rebuilding the temple. And I'm telling my people to give you silver and gold as you go to help you with your travel and rebuilding. This is an edict that comes from the most powerful man on the planet at this time. Interestingly enough, about 200 years, get this guys, 200 years prior to this decree, the prophet Isaiah said this would happen. And he didn't just say this would happen. He actually gave the name of the king who would deliver the edict. That's amazing. 200 years prior to the events of Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and following, Isaiah spoke. God speaking through Isaiah delivers this word of prophecy. Keep in mind 200 years prior. And God says, it is I who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. That's amazing. In the Jewish Bible at this time, when they're in captivity in their scriptures, 200 years prior, written 200 years prior, is a prophecy that a decree will come from a king named Cyrus that the Jews can return and rebuild the temple. In fact, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, 
who wrote during the first century uh, A.D., Josephus, the way he tells the story is some Jews showed this prophecy to Cyrus. Basically, hey, Cyrus, look, you're in our Bible. And look what it says you're going to do. And according to Josephus, God used that to prompt Cyrus to deliver this edict. And God's providence, God used this very prophecy as something to stir up the heart of Cyrus to deliver this decree. Either way, Cyrus is moved to deliver this edict, releasing the people to go and rebuild the temple. We find later in the chapter that he actually says, hey, all of the temple wares that were confiscated uh, when the temple was destroyed and brought into captivity were given all of it back. And at the end of chapter one, you see an inventory list of thousands of items that are being given back to the people of Israel to take with them as they rebuild and resupply the temple in Jerusalem. But according to the language here in Ezra 1, it is God who awakens the spirit of Cyrus to do this. God turns his heart in the direction that he wants it to go. God ultimately is the sovereign king. And Cyrus is someone that God exerts influence over to get him to do what he wants Cyrus to do. I love what Dr. Ralph Davis says about this. Listen to this. He says, do you see the theology of the text? Do you see how the kings and dictators and head knockers of this earth are Yahweh's servant boys? That's all they are. They're Jehovah's servant boys. Therefore, you have no ultimate fear of the rulers of this age, for they are under the auspices of Yahweh's pleasure and he uses them as he wills. We need this reminder, don't we? The power brokers, the powers that be, the presidents and governors and senators and world leaders. You know what? God is just as sovereign today as he was back in this day. He's just as much in control. He brings people to power. He takes them down. And when they're in power, he turns their heart in whatever direction he would have them go in order to fulfill and accomplishes his accomplish his sovereign purposes in human history. Our God is king and every other ruler is just his servant boy or servant girl. Behold our God. In addition to this decree, that's the first great awakening. God awakened Cyrus. But then beyond that, guys, if God would have just awakened Cyrus to deliver this decree, but didn't awaken the people or they didn't take advantage of this, then we would have no story here. So God uh, does not just awaken Cyrus. There's a second great awakening in this chapter, and that is where we find God awakening his people. God awakens his people. Verse five, it says, then the heads of father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priest and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had awakened to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And look at this as they went and all those about them. In other words, the people of Persia encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods, with cattle and with valuables, aside from all that was given by them as a free will offering to help with the building of the temple. So the children of Israel are, are told you're allowed to go. And as they're going, the people of Persia are saying, hey, would you like some silver? Would you like some gold? 
Would you like some cattle for your journey? And can we give you an offering towards the rebuilding of the temple? So God is giving them favor with the people from Cyrus on down. As Ezra opens, we see God on the move. He's shaking Cyrus awake and causing him to deliver a decree. And God then moves throughout his people and he's rousing them from sleep, as it were, and stirring them to action as this second exodus now begins. So let's sum up. I know Jonathan Jones was in the first service. He would love this. At this juncture, uh, the people of Judah have been given a CUP, conditional use permit, from Cyrus. They've been given occupancy of the land that they were uprooted from 70 years earlier. God even... Uh, on his own accord, instituted a capital-raising campaign, and they've been richly supplied uh, by the people of Persia. They've even been issued FF&Es, facilities, furnishings, and equipment, as the temple wares and temple goods have been given back to them, saying, hey, take this and use this uh, to fill the temple and to use once the temple has been rebuilt. All of this is seismic. It is truly amazing. But what's truly amazing as we go deeper into the book of Ezra is what the people do once they return to the land. Uh, You see that a real change has been accomplished in their hearts. They don't just go back and live the way they were living in sin 70 years earlier. No, they go back and their hearts are changed. They've been chastened. They want to do things right. These are people that have been spiritually awakened and they do what spiritually awakened people do when they come back to the land. We'll see five manifestations of a spiritual awakening that God accomplished in them in Ezra chapter 3. Or let's say it this way, five actions of God's awakened people as they return to the land of promise. By the way... If you want to read through Ezra 2, you're welcome to. It's a lot of numbers. It's one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible. It's basically a census. Here's the people that are going back. About 42,000 people plus are going back in this migration, in this exodus, as they return to the land of promise. And once they return, what do they do? Well, the curtains open on Ezra 3. And we see five things that they do. Number one, they gather together as one person. They gather together as one person. It says, now when the seven month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. They didn't just gather. They gathered as one. They were united in purpose and in passion. Though there are thousands of people, over 40,000 people that are assembling here, it's almost as if you were to ask somebody to take attendance and say, man, there's thousands of people here. Can you take attendance? Sure, I'll do that. And they take attendance. They would come back to you and say, I've got the attendance number. What is it? They would say it's one. One. It's as if, I've counted them up, but it's as if they are one person they're so unified we find the same kind of language describing the early church in the book of acts 
A group of believers also gathering in Jerusalem as they gathered with one mind in one place, with one mind in one accord, in unity of purpose and mind and passion. Indeed, I I think we can rightly say that one of the characteristics of a spiritually awakened person is a desire to gather with God's people. When God's Spirit is working in a person's heart and has saved them, that person experiences a tug, a pull towards his brothers and sisters. There is a desire to gather with other people. They're drawn to God's people. Someone who's not been awakened uh, feels a pull away from God's people. They prefer isolation. But a spiritually awakened people, they do not forsake the assembling of themselves together. They come together and they don't just come together, but they come together as one in unity. That's the first thing we see these spiritually awakened people doing here as they return to the land of promise. A second thing we observe them doing is they obtain atonement for their sins through blood sacrifice. They obtain atonement for their sins through blood sacrifice. Verse 2, Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation for or because they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. By the way, notice in verse three, their motive for building the altar. It says in verse 3, 4, or because they were terrified. They were afraid. That's an interesting motive. They built an altar for burnt offerings because they were afraid of the people of the lands. You find out later in Ezra they have good reason to be at least suspicious of the people uh, because they're going to face opposition from the inhabitants of that area both in Ezra and in Nehemiah but we learn here that there was fear in their hearts and it was the fear that drove them to build this altar that was at least one of their motives whether their fear was right or wrong legitimate or illegitimate the good thing is they allowed their fear to drive them to God that's what's important Dale Ralph Davis the commentator says it this way, them building the altar because they were afraid. He says this implies that their fears drove them to worship God, to seek God. Is that legitimate? Should we have higher motives for worshiping God and building an altar? Maybe. But why shouldn't we take our fears to this altar? And their altar building, they unashamedly assumed that God was their refuge. You can be fearful and faithful at the same time. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is filled with anxieties and fears. And I think I would say to you, I don't know that I would tell you to spend a lot of time worrying about or trying to figure out whether your fears are legitimate or illegitimate. Just bring the whole mess to God. Okay? 
Bring the whole mess to God. Let your fears, legitimate or illegitimate, drive you to God. In 1 Peter 5, uh, God basically says, cast all of your anxieties on me because I care for you, right? He doesn't say, cast all of your legitimate anxieties on me because I care for you and they better be legitimate. Don't, don't, don't cast any anxieties on me that are not legitimate. No, just bring it all to me. Legitimate, illegitimate. Just bring all your anxieties to me. I care for you. Whatever your fears, just let them drive you to God like the people of Judah do here. So that's one of their motives. They do this because they had fear and they wanted to connect to God, so they build an altar. But there's another motive that they have for building this altar, and that is they wanted to offer burnt offerings on it. They wanted to do something on this altar, and that was offer burnt offerings on it. A little bit about burnt offerings. An animal, a bull, or a lamb, or a few other possible animals would be inspected and the worshiper would have to find out that this animal upon inspection was without blemish in any way. It had to be a perfect animal and the animal would be laid upon the altar and then the worshiper would take his hands and place his hands upon the head of the animal so that symbolically a transfer of his or her sins would pass from from them to the animal and the person would then specifically acknowledge their sin and upon placing their hands on the animal, the animal's throat would be cut, the animal would be killed and then burned and blood that pours out of that slain animal would then be sprinkled on the altar so that they would have atonement. This animal died for their sins, and they now have atonement through this burnt offering. The burnt offering was an intensely personal offering. It was up to you to find the animal. It was up to you to inspect the animal to make sure that the animal was without blemish. It was up to you to bring the animal to Jerusalem. It was up to you to place your hands upon the animal so that your sins would pass from you to that animal. And then that animal would be slain very specifically for your sins in order to give you atonement. I think it's amazing. It says a lot about their hearts that as soon as these people return to the land of promise, their first priority upon gathering together is atonement. We got to have atonement. They don't, you know, spend a lot of time. Let's get settled in first. They're not saying, hey, let's start on the temple. No, before they get busy with any of those things, their first thought is we must have atonement and we need a blood sacrifice in order to obtain this atonement for ourselves. Our greatest need is atonement because we are sinners and we must have this atonement. So our first priority is let's get an altar built so that we can offer burnt offerings on it. The same is true for you and me. Our greatest need is atonement. As you come into God's presence and even today gathering with his people in God's presence right now in this room, I ask you, do you have atonement? 
do you have atonement? We all know that these sacrifices that we're talking about all pointed to Jesus, who was the consummate sacrifice, the ultimate fulfillment of all of the sacrificial systems in the Old Testament, right? And so we know Christ died for sinners, but here's what I want to ask you. Have you personally examined Jesus and found him to be without blemish? Have you chosen him to be your sacrifice? Have you reached out and placed your hands upon Jesus, as it were, so that your sins pass from you to him? Now, in order to place your hands on Jesus for this transfer to happen, you've got to take your hands off of whatever your hands have been on. A lot of people, they don't put their hands on Jesus because their hands are on their own righteousness. That's what they're counting on for their atonement. Their hands are on their own achievements. Their hands are on their own good works. Uh, Their hands are on some other person that they're depending upon for their own salvation. Their hands are upon their diet or on Sabbath keeping or whatever that they're counting on and banking on to give them atonement and righteous standing before God. Have you reached a point in your life where you've retracted your hand from all such things? And by the way, some people's hands are like this. They're on their own heads. They're depending on themselves to be what provides them atonement. Have you taken your hands off of everything else and inspected Jesus and found him to be without blemish and placed your hands upon him so that this transfer can take place, as it were, to where he is the Savior for you? If you have, then you have atonement you have atonement and the people of judah during this time period they their first item of business is they want atonement for us today we don't need ongoing sacrifices christ died once and for all for our sins but you know what even though he died on the cross for our sins and we have atonement our thinking should not be Yeah, you know, I I did look at that and notice that on the day I was saved, but I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore. No, as believers, we see modeled in the New Testament that we are to forever have our eyes upon the cross, praising and thanking God for the sacrifice of Jesus, right? Um, Charles Spurgeon said, you can't think about the cross too much. You just can't. You can't stare at it for too long. Our attitude should be that of the Apostle Paul who says, God forbid that I should glory in anything other than the cross of Christ. Our attitude should be that of Paul who said to the Corinthians, I determined to act as if I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our attitude should be that of Horatio Spafford, who in his song, It Is Well With My Soul, says my sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We gather around the Lord's table that Jesus invites us to. And as often as we partake of the bread and partake of the cup, the Bible says we are proclaiming his death until he comes. We are to be as atonement centered in our celebration as these people of Judah were atonement centered in what they were obtaining for themselves through the burnt offering.
you see that their hearts have changed. We need atonement and we need it through a blood sacrifice of an innocent animal. And so there are offerings, burnt offerings being made night and day. There's a lot of sin to atone for here. Notice one more thing. They built an altar for sacrifice according to the law of Moses, the man of God. They didn't just build an altar, but they were like, what what does the Bible say? What does Moses say as to how this needs to be built? They're opening up their scriptures and whatever Moses says about how to build this altar and what happens on it and how a sacrifice gets executed. Everything's got to be according to what Moses says in the scriptures. We'll notice this theme throughout this chapter. There's a third thing that they do. That these spiritually awakened people do that give evidence of their spiritual awakening. And that is they reinstitute all of the sacrifices and festivals prescribed in their scriptures. It says, and they celebrated the feast of booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. In short, here's what's happening. They're like, hey, this is the time of year right now uh, for the Feast of Booths, where it's kind of our wilderness remembrance week, and it's prescribed in the Old Testament law that we're supposed to get out of our houses and live in temporary shelters for a week just to reminisce and relive and re-experience what it was like for our ancestors to live in temporary shelters as they journeyed through the wilderness. And let's remember how God delivered our ancestors from Egypt and led them and cared for them through the wilderness and then brought them into the promised land. And while we're at it, we're reinstituting the festival of tabernacles or booze here. While we are at it, uh, we're going to bring everything back into practice. Everything. You see a list of things here in this passage, Uh, the feast of booze, burnt offerings, new moons, fixed festivals, free will offerings. All these are just kind of representative of the whole package. What they're doing is they're going to their scriptures and saying, what does God tell us to do? Whatever he tells us to do, we're going to start doing it. Forget the fact that for 70 years, no one's been doing this. We don't care if God's word tells us to do this, then this is what we're going to do. May God give us the boldness and the courage and the humility as a church to just follow what the Bible tells us to do. There's a lot of churches now that they're trying to figure out what should our stance be about this or that? Should we do this or that or the other? And to determine what they do, they put their finger to the wind to find out what the prevailing winds of our culture are dictating. And then they're making their decisions and taking their stances accordingly. May God give us here at Cornerstone the holy courage to say, you know what? Everyone else can do what they're doing. We're going to the Bible. What does God in his word tell us to do? Whatever he tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to believe. And that's what we're going to preach. Let the world... 
Let the world scoff and tell us you're just so on the wrong side of history. It doesn't matter. We're on the right side of divine history because righteousness will prevail. And when Jesus splits the skies and returns and triumphs over his enemies, we will behold him and know we were on the right side of history. Amen. So let us follow God's word. What these people are doing centuries ago is just such a wonderful, precious example for us. They're just open in the Bible. What does it say? Okay, let's do it. But no one's done this for seven decades. Doesn't matter if God says do it, let's do it. It's all back in. We're doing all of it, the whole package. There's a fourth thing that they do that is evidence of spiritual awakening, and that is they build God's temple. They build God's temple. It says, then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, And the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began to work. And they appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. So they begin laying the foundation to build the temple of God in fulfillment of prophecy. They want to worship God, so we want to build a place here in Jerusalem in which to worship God. We're going to give of our time, our giftedness, our abilities, and our financial resources to this effort. They all realize we've been so enriched with gold and silver and what have you. When we left to come here, supplied by the people of Persia, this, this, these funds have been given to us for a reason. And that is to put them to work in the building of the temple of God. And here's the remarkable thing to me. Uh, they want, even with this, we see this pattern. They want to do it right They don't want to just build a temple. They want to build it right. And so they appoint Levites in verse 8 to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. They're basically saying, hey, we're going to build this temple and we're appointing you Levites 20 years and older to watch us and guide us and make sure we do it right. Hold us accountable. And in verse 9... They had people oversee the workmen, the workmen and artists that they were, were like, we don't want artistic license. Watch us carefully and make sure we do it right. According to the specifications of the Levites, whom God has given the right to regulate such things. One of the signs of a spiritually awakened person and people is a desire for oversight. A desire, a hunger for accountability. It's someone who's spiritually awakened, doesn't just go off on their own and do whatever. It's someone 
who feels called of God to do something or they're about to embark on something, but then they go to someone else over them who is an overseer or an older spiritual brother or sister and says to them, I am about to do such and such. Can you watch me and make sure I do this right? Or young people. Imagine you're beginning a relationship, young man, with some gal. And imagine in beginning that relationship, you go to somebody in spiritual authority over you, someone who's discipling you and going to them and saying, I am beginning a relationship with this gal. Can you put your eyeballs on our relationship? And can you watch us and hold us accountable and make sure we do this right? You say, oh, I I wouldn't do that. A spiritually awakened person would do that. Someone who's not been spiritually awakened, it's like, yeah, I kind of hope we do things right in our relationship, but I sure like the freedom to fail if that's what I want to do. I don't want people watching. I don't want any eyeballs on our relationship. Spiritually awakened people, even with this, they're building the temple. It's a good thing, but they're like, we want to do it right. And we want to appoint overseers who watch over us and make sure we're getting it right. Real quick, how do we build the temple today as a church? Today, it's not some physical building. You know what the temple of God is for us today? It's the people. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you, plural, you guys and gals, plural, are the temple of God, singular. Uh, Cornerstone is a temple composed of living stones. Every member of our church is a living stone that composes this temple, a special dwelling place of God. And every time we edify one another and build into one another, we're further building the temple of God here. Every time we share the gospel with the lost and evangelize them and call them to faith in Christ and God's spirit awakens them and brings them to faith in Christ and they become a part of our church body, another living stone is added and we're doing temple building by ministering to one another, edification, and by evangelizing the lost. That's how we do temple building today. And I can't think of any other task of greater, more vital importance than that. 20 years ago, Cornerstone came to this campus with about, as a temple, with about 120 living stones composing the structure of it. Now there's over 400 living stones. God has led us to move down the street 1.7 miles so that uh, in his grace, this temple might grow larger. But you know what? We don't want to just build a temple to build it and to make it larger We want to get it right like they did. There's a lot of people building temples nowadays, but they're not the temple of God and they're not composed of living stones. They're composed of dead stones. For the temple of God today to be built right, we need to be living the gospel, preaching the truth of the gospel, calling people to faith in Christ. And as they believe in him and surrender their lives to him, They become a part of the temple and God's temple is built the right way. There's a fifth and a final thing that they do here 
that gives evidence of their spiritually wakened state, and that is they worship God. They worship God. Even before the temple was completed, they're worshiping God. It says, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord. Look at this. According to the directions of King David of Israel, the text goes on and they sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord saying for he is good for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Let's stop right there for a moment. Notice, guys, that even in their singing and praising, they want to get it right. It says, according to the directions of King David of Israel. Look at this. You can put this all uh, together um, just in the chapter. They built the altar as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse two, verse four, they celebrated the feast of booze as it is written. Uh, Verse four, they offered burnt offerings according to the ordinance. So that's the prescribed procedure given in their scriptures. Verse 8, they appointed Levites to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Verse 9, they had people to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. And now verse 10, they're like, man, we really want to praise the Lord. But how do we do that? We want to do that according to the directions of King David in the Psalter. At every turn, every single thing they do, they want to make sure that they get it right. And they're following their Bibles. That's their passion here. They know we were chastised and judged by God because we got away from his law. We want to adhere as closely to his word as we can. Right now we're in the mood to praise the Lord. But you know what? We got to make sure we got to be careful, make sure we even do that right. So what does King David say in the inspired Psalter? Whatever he says, let's do that. And so they did that. And in their worship, they praised the Lord. Um, They also sang. So there's music in their praise and praising the Lord. They're boasting in the Lord. That's what the word praise means. It means to brag, to boast, and their boast is in the Lord. They're not bragging about themselves, but their boast is in God. That's one of the earmarks of a spiritually awakened person. Their boast is in God, not in themselves. Additionally, they're giving thanks to the Lord, giving him credit for everything that he has done. Also, they're celebrating the goodness of God, saying, for he is good. They've sinned as a people. They know that they've rebelled as a people. They've been uprooted from the land. But God is now in his grace. They don't deserve this. But on the other side of their failure and their sin, God preserves them for 70 years in a foreign land, and he now makes way for them to come back and to dwell in the land of promise again. They're mindful of all of the ways they've sinned, and yet they're saying, you know what? God is good on the other side of sin. God is not just a good God to people who've never messed up. God is a good God for people who have blown it and sinned. If you're here today and you have blown it, you've sinned royally, Even this week, you could hardly bring yourself to come into this room. You're so ashamed. Let me tell you something. Run to Jesus. Run to God. Experience atonement through Christ. Celebrate that. 
I promise you that you will find that God is good to sinners. He is good to people on the other side of their sin. And they're cherishing that. They're also cherishing the loving kindness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God. We've broken covenant with God, and yet He is committed to us. And His covenant faithfulness, His loving kindness endures forever. Look at what it says also. It says they shouted. And they didn't just shout, but they shouted with a great shout. I guess it's possible to shout with a not great shout. Um, Try that um, after the service. Um, So they didn't just shout, but they shouted with a great shout. It was so great. Verse 13 says you could hear them from far away. It's okay to shout the praises of the Lord. Their shout could be heard from far away. And you know what? They had no electronic amplifying equipment to aid them in this. Also, they didn't just have a worship team up front who did all the shouting for them while everyone else just kind of swayed back and forth and quietly mouthed the words of the songs, letting everyone else on the stage shout. And everyone shouted. This whole congregation of 40,000 plus, they are the choir. Um, we, we need to think this way when it comes to worship. You're not the audience. On Sunday mornings, you're not. You're so not the audience. God is the audience of our worship, and you are the choir. Okay? And the people up here, they're the choir directors. And they're leading you, the choir, in the worship of God. And we need to worship in a robust way John Wesley gave five rules for congregational singing many years ago. The second of his rules is this. Sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sing the songs of Satan. People who don't know God, they sing. They sing loud. They don't care that other people hear their voice or notice that they're off note or whatever. You know what? We got so much more to be excited about. And you know, these people are going crazy. And guess what? The temple hasn't even been built. It's just the foundation. And they're excited. They're ecstatic. And they're shouting with a great shout. They're not thinking, you know what? Let's wait to worship God. Man, when the temple's built, our worship's going to be awesome. Imagine the acoustics. Let's wait. No, no, no. Foundation laid. Nothing's even been built on it yet. But they're already exploding with praise and thanksgiving and worship to God. What a great example. We notice in verse 12 and 13 that the people, some of them in this crowd, wept as they saw the foundation being laid. We don't have time to read the passage, but some are shouting for joy, but the older generation is weeping with a loud voice. So there's a mixture of emotions in this audience of several thousand, over 40,000 people. 
And I'll leave it to you to fully speculate as to why the older generation is weeping. But at the very least, as they're seeing the tangibility of it all coming to pass, the foundation's been laid. They know the temple is about to be constructed on top of that. It's all so vivid now. And they're realizing this is so great, but it's dawning on them the reality of what they've lived without for 70 years because of sin. And the loss is overwhelming to them. And they weep. They weep. Maybe some are looking at the foundation going, uh, the way this looks like it's heading, this is not going to be nearly as impressive as Solomon's temple was. And maybe they're bombed over that. But whatever their weeping is coming from, I don't think those who are weeping are miserable. It's just simply an overpowering experience for them. They feel chastened. They're remorseful. They're broken over what they've lived without for 70 years because of sin. Yes, this is great, but oh, the loss. I'm 90 years old. I'm about to die. 70 years of my life I've not had this blessing because we've sinned as a people. The younger generation shouted for joy. The older generation wept. I think both older and younger generations on this occasion were very happy that they were having multi-generational worship. The older are enriched by the exuberance of the younger shouting for joy. And I'm sure the younger generation's looking at the older saying, what are you crying for? And they're like, well, let me tell you what I'm feeling and why. And the younger generation is enriched by what the older generation shares through their tears. May God help us to forever be a church where both young and old worship God together. Too much is lost when that division happens and it's all one or the other. In conclusion, God awakens his people to return to the land. And what do they do? They gather in unity. They obtain and celebrate atonement that points to Christ as the ultimate sacrifice. They bring back everything prescribed in their scriptures. They build God's temple and they worship and praise God We've been blessed as a church to be able to do these very five things. May God give us the grace to continue to do this. And don't walk out of here and say, God, help me to do all five of these things. If anything, just walk out of here and say, God, wake me up spiritually. Just wake me up. Because spiritually awakened people do these things. They do these things. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to be a spiritually wakened church. Lord, you're a good God. Your word is is glorious indeed. We see a great example, Lord. These people with so much less revelation than we have, so much less to be amazed about, and they're just such a convicting example for us. Wake us up. Wake us up, Lord. Make us a spiritually wakened congregation that lives out the very examples that we see portrayed in Ezra 3 this morning, that we might gather in unity, celebrate our atonement through Christ, practice what you prescribe in your word, that we might do the work of building your temple as we invest in one another and share the gospel with the lost, bringing people to faith in Christ and make us a community who worships and praises your name, Lord, for you are good.
receive these funds that we give in this offering, Lord. Use every penny that is given for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the spread of the message of salvation through him and for the building of the true temple, the people of God. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.